All right, take your Bibles today and turn to Mark's Gospel, the very first chapter. Last week was kind of an introduction, and we learned that um, who this Mark was. He wasn't just Mark. We see him later in Scripture as John Mark, and uh, we know a little bit about this fellow. So I have a question for you this morning. Here's my question. Why is preparation so important? Why is preparation so important? Let's talk about that. I've entitled this message, People Get Ready. We said last week, Mark's gospel is a gospel of action. He doesn't have time for genealogies. He doesn't have time for fluff. He's, talk, he's writing this to Roman people, mostly Gentiles, and they are the show-me state. They were Missouri before there was Missouri. They want to see the truth. They don't want to hear it. They want to see it displayed and in action. And Mark starts off with a bang. Let's look at that this morning. In Mark chapter 1, we're going to read the first eight verses. It'll be on the screen, but read it out of your own Bible as I read it aloud. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea, and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River. Notice this and underline this in your Bible, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Verse 7, and he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I want to talk to you today about people get ready. Jesus is coming. Dr. C.E. Matthews said this, 75% of the victory depends on the preparation. So what are some things that we intentionally prepare for in life? What are some things that we get ready for, that we game up for, that we prepare for? Babies? Babies? Absolutely. And boy, I don't know if you can ever be fully prepared for that. But boy, lay that groundwork before you have them. Amen. What'd you say? Wedding. Weddings, same thing. We, you got to prepare for a wedding because there's a lot of moving parts in that. There is a, uh, a test called the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, also known as the ASFAB. I know there's one young man in here this morning who is preparing for that. And uh, that's my son, Sam. He's been practicing uh, for that test, that evaluation, so he can be ready to find out where he's going to be best able to serve this great nation of ours in the armed forces. You prepare for that. You don't just go take it. You get ready. How many of you have ever taken the SAT? For some of you that haven't, that's not the past tense of sit. It's actually a test. I told that to one of my sons once who called me and said, I'm going to take the SAT. I said, you know, that's not the past tense of sit. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, and you prepare for that, right? Uh, I got students in my class in the 10th grade that are already preparing for the SAT. Um, you prepare for teaching a class or preaching a sermon. And the preparation makes all the difference in the world. Um, I know that our friend Brian here, he and his family live on top of one of the few mountains in Macon, apparently. And all the water in the county seems to run down his backyard when it rains. And it is driving this man crazy. And so he has come up with this massive preparation of plans for a drainage system. And boy, he showed it to us on Wednesday night. And I tell you what, if it works the way he's got this thing mapped out to work, we're going to be able to have a slip and slide down his driveway. It'd be a river. <laughs> It'll all be going to driveway, not taking all the dirt out of his backyard. He's preparing. And Brian, uh, one thing I love about him, he is a prep man. He's a preparer. The preparation is the key. I used to work with my brother-in-law for a little bit. Um, helping him install carpets, and I, and, I, and I came real fast that the Lord wanted me to preach and not do carpets, because the prep work is hard, and we would spend more time on prepping that floor than laying the carpet, because the, the, the success was in the preparation. It's been said, the more important the event, the more vital the preparation. The coming of King Jesus... I think you would agree with me, was the most important event in all of human history. And God had a plan and a man to introduce himself through Jesus to the world. The plan and the man were chosen well in advance of the advent and launch of the public ministry of King Jesus. So let's unpack that great episode today as we put ourselves in the place of a first century Roman Gentile saint who for the first time ever begins to hear the entire story of the great servant king that has changed their life. First, we see the strange beginning, and I've just entitled that in your outline this morning, the proclamation in verse number one. If you've got your own Bibles, look there in verse number one. Some have suggested that this might actually be intended as a title for Mark's um, history of Jesus because there's no verb in it. It is just a phrase. It says literally the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now I know how you hear that. We've been in church so long that those words have come to mean nothing. And yet every word in that title, if you will, is pregnant with great meaning to those who have experienced this risen servant king. Amen? And I just want to rehearse that with you for just a moment. First of all, I see in there it says, the beginning. Where else have you seen those words, the beginning, or in the beginning? Yeah, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? God did something. He created the heavens and the earth. We think that possibly John, the beloved apostle, who wrote his gospel some decades after Mark wrote his, may have borrowed from Mark's idea here when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This book is a new beginning of God's dealing with fallen mankind. 
It's a new start. It is, in fact, a new day. So in the be- this is the beginning. The beginning of what? What does it say? The beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel. Now that word gospel is a really a Roman word. Is from the Greek Hellenistic culture. Euangelion is the name of it. Is how it's pronounced. It is a public proclamation of good news. This proclamation would have been made by a herald. Um, And a herald was not a man named herald. A herald was his job to herald forth or to proclaim forth the good news of the kingdom and the culture. Very common in the first century culture. There was no CNN, Caesar's News Network. There was no Herod the Fox News Channel either. There was instead these heralds who, would go, who were sent forth to proclaim the good news, the euangelion of Rome. And they were used to hearing this. Um, it was not uncommon for a herald to show up in the center of the town and say, Hear ye, hear ye, your Lord and Master Caesar has defeated yet again the Gauls and remains the Caesar, the king of the universe. Not unusual to hear these good tidings of great joy. Does that sound familiar? The euangelion. We forget that the gospel means good news. And the gospel news is meant to be what? Shared. There's a new restaurant uh, that I've seen pop up on Facebook three times this week. Guess what? People have gone there and said, hey, this place is really good. Gets me to thinking. What are they doing? They are sharing the gospel. It literally means good news. They say, hey, there's a new restaurant and it's really good. You all should go check it out. It's got me interested. And that's exactly how good news is to be proclaimed and shared. Are you with me this morning? So this is the beginning, a new chapter, something new that God is doing. And it is good news. Well, what is it the good news of? That is the person. And we see here the good news of Jesus. Now we know that this is Jesus' name. It's how he has identified, just like my name is Paul, and you have your first name. This was Jesus' first name. It was a throwback. Uh, even the word Jesus is a translated word into the, into the Greek from, from the uh, Hebrew. The Hebrew of that would have been Yeshua, also in the Old Testament, Joshua, same word. And Yeshua means Yahweh, Jehovah, saves, or literally Jehovah's salvation, God's salvation. Jesus' very name is good news for lost men and women. Amen, church? He is our salvation. He is Jehovah's salvation. And boy, that's good news, and he has come. But he is not just Jesus. By the way, that is his identity. He is the rescuer. Amen? Here's another good song. Go look this up on your subscription service. I listen to this all the time. I love it. It just gets my blood pumping. It's from, uh, uh, Paul's going to have to tell me what the group is. It's called Rescuer, Our Rescuer. What's that group? Um, Run Collective. That's it. Run Collective. Go look it up. Rescuer. Great. That just gets my blood pumping. He's our rescuer. And he is, isn't he? I love the old song we used to sing years ago. I was sinking deep in sin. Far, some of you old people in here, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But then the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me now. Safe am I. Safe am I. Love 
lifted me. Jesus, he is our rescuer. And that's good news this morning. Amen? But he's not just our rescuer. It says this is the beginning of something new, this euangelion, this great news of a rescuer who is also a king. And that's what Christ means. He's introducing them to who this good news is all about. Christ means Messiah, or literally, that word Messiah, Christ, means anointed one. Now, there were three people who had to be anointed, and this anointing was significant in the Old Testament. This anointing meant a setting apart of a person to a specific task. Listen to these three offices of the Old Testament that required anointing. First was the prophet of God. The one who brought God's word from God to man. Thus saith who? The Lord. That man was anointed, so everybody knew he was God's mouthpiece. The second was a priest. The priest was the one who represented fallen, sinful man to a holy God. You see, this is the reverse direction, isn't it? The priest was the one who would bring the sacrifice to God to atone for the sins of fallen man so that a holy God could even have a relationship with fallen man. He was the go-between, the mediator, if you will. And then the third person that was anointed was who? Who do you think? A prophet, priest, and what, church? King. The king was anointed to be the ruler over the kingdom. So in here, in, in Mark's gospel, he, he, he does not refer to Jesus' priestly ministry specifically. He has a slight nod in three different places, mentions Jesus as prophet. But you know what he focuses on? Jesus as king, the anointed one. This is the good news of your rescuer king. And boy, the Romans would understand the authority of a king because they lived under the rule of who? Caesar. They understood that authority. That Jesus here, Mark, focuses on Jesus' task and his title. That he is the anointed king, the rescuing king, Jesus Christ. And then he adds at the end of this introduction, just so you know, Romans, Roman citizens, who we're talking about here. He is not just the rescuer. He's not just the king. Listen to me. Mark fills out this introduction by saying he is the very son of God. By the way, guess who was called? Guess who, guess who owned that title in Rome? Caesar. Everything about Caesar was very messianic, <coughs> which is why it was offensive to first century Jews and Christians alike, which is why Christians ultimately ended up in the Colosseums. Because they would not throw a little bit of incense on the altar and say, Caesar Corias, Caesar is Lord. Instead they say, I can't do that. There's someone with a greater authority than Caesar. There's someone who truly is the Son of God. His name is Jesus and he is the Christ, not Caesar. They were willing to be sewn up in animal skins and thrown to lions to be torn apart and devoured alive for that statement right there. And Mark introduces them to this Jesus who is the Son of God. And it's, this is his heritage and his uniqueness. And it's so vitally important that we understand this today, church. He's not just the rescuer. He's not just the king. He is the very son of God. And that is pregnant with truth for us today. Our doctrine must be informed well on the, on the foundation of the scriptures. 
You know, in the early church, as we went along and as the apostles died out and their heirs came about and, 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 and their disciples, guys like Polycarp, uh, and then Polycarp and, and, and John, who was John's disciple, discipled his people. And, and, and just a few generations out, we started to have issues. Who was Jesus? And they went back to the scriptures. And, and they would call these councils together of the church. And one of those councils was called the Nicene Council. And they had a problem because there was some weird stuff going around trying to explain how Jesus was the Son of God and what that meant and what it didn't mean. There were some, some heretical ideas. And the Nicene Council came up with a creed. A portion of their creed says this about Jesus. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father, listen to this, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Eternally the third person of the Trinity. There will be people that will come and knock on your door and tell you that Jesus is not the eternal Son of God. Instead, He and, he and Satan are actually brothers. And as God is, we may become one day. Those folks are from the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. Mike Glaze and I, you remember, we sat down with a former member of our church who had been having lunch with the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they had them all turned upside down because this man's doctrine was not formed well and informed well from the Scriptures and the historical Church of Jesus Christ. And they had him believing that Jesus was not God, but was like God. I'm telling you today, you can't even get past verse 1 of Mark's gospel. If Jesus is not the Son of God and the very nature of God from before the foundation of the earth, then He is not God. Close your Bible and go do something else. That's why this doctrine is important this morning. You see this quote on the screen um, from James, James Brooks. In his New Testament American commentary, I thought this was pretty poignant, so I wanted to share it with you today. He says this, the very first sentence, therefore, evidences that Mark's gospel is more than a narrative of events. It is also a theology. A theology. Primarily a Christology, a do the doctrine of Christ. Although the characters in the story struggle with Jesus' identity, the readers or hearers know from the very beginning that He is the promised Messiah, the very Son of God. What a poignant statement. Because you're, you're going to find out. We're not going to get very far into chapter 1, and these guys are scratching their heads saying, who is this guy? But all oh, the readers, you and I, those first century Roman saints, they didn't have to wonder about who Jesus is. Nor do you today, Amen. We are told from the scriptures, it is revealed. So we come into this narrative, this history of the rescuing king who is the son of God, knowing exactly who he is. What's the old saying about hindsight, church? It's 2020. So with that in mind, I want you to see, secondly, the prediction. And this part will go fairly quickly. The prediction. So uh, we have had first... Um, the proclamation, the introduction, now we see the prediction. Here's what's going to happen before this king shows up. Verse 2, as it is written in the prophets. And the prophets are literally the Old Testament 
um, starting after Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's Moses. And the prophets is everything afterwards. Specifically, he's going to quote two prophets, Malachi and Isaiah. And first is Malachi, he's quoted, where he says, quote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And then verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The first one comes from Malachi 3.1. You see it there on the screen. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, the, the new covenant with God, whom you desire, Israel was looking for her Messiah, will come, says the Lord Almighty. So Mark comes right out the gate. Him, he is a good Jewish young man, and he knows the scriptures. He said, you're familiar with this. This is the one said, there's going to be a messenger to come before him to prepare the way. And then the second verse is, is straight out of Isaiah. And that will come up here on the screen. All right, this is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 3. And here's what it says. The voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All right, so this is quoted right out of the Old Testament. So in other words, a forerunner, a preparer of the ground was prophesied in Malachi and Isaiah. And Mark is connecting the dots quickly for his Roman readers. Got to do everything fast because apparently the Romans had a short attention span. And you're going to see that here. There's so many events in here that he just boom, 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 hit you with. Now, if you want to get those expanded, go look at Luke or go look at Mark and they'll give you more details. Mark doesn't have time for details. He's got to get the word out and, and, and the timeline out for these uh, Roman saints. And it's as if he is saying in these two uh, prophecies here, does this guy sound familiar? Do you all know anybody that fits this description? Uh, and of course we do, and we're going to be introduced to him now in what's called the preparation. Uh, so we've heard the proclamation We've examined the prediction in the Old Testament of the prophets. And now we will discover the preparation in verses 4 through 8. So look at there with me, if you will, in verse number 4. The scripture says, John, there's the identity of the preparer, came baptizing where, church? In the wilderness. Make sure your Bible's open to John 1. And preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. First of all, I want you to see who the preparer is. And his name is what, church? John. Now, now put, a, put a placeholder in, John, in Mark there, in Mark 1, and turn over to Luke chapter 1. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. You're going to go right and uh, make your way to Luke chapter 1. Real quick, I want to give you a little bit of John's history. He's got a very interesting history about how he comes along. And I will, I will give you the Reader's Digest of some of that history Today, First of all, his pre-birth history. Uh, Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in 39, but let me tell you what's happened. His father's name is Zacharias, okay? And he is, he is serving in the temple of the Lord, and he is told, you're going to have a son. Now, all this time, they haven't been able to have children, try as they might. And now his wife is older, beyond 
childbearing years, and the Lord comes to him and says, this time next year, you're going to bring a baby with you. And his name's going to be John. And Zacharias says, <laughs> I think there's some things you don't know, God. By the way, have you ever told God there's some stuff he doesn't know? There's some details that, that apparently he's unaware of? Let me give you a little hint. Don't do that. <laughs> God knows. Amen? He said, we're too old for that. And God said, no, you're not. It's going to happen. And because you didn't believe me, uh, I'm not going to let you talk. You're going to be a mute until that kid is born. You're going to name him John. Right? And so what happens? He can't talk. So he comes out, can't talk. So they, it, it's a whole story, very interesting. He goes home. Guess what? His wife comes up pregnant. Uh, just like God said. So look at, so about that time, she's pregnant for a few months. And she's the cousin to Mary, the mother of who? Jesus. Now, we know that whole thing was a scandal, how that happened. She becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit himself. So she has to get out of Nazareth for a while. Nazareth is in the north part of Palestine, in, 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 the, in the province of Galilee. So she heads south to the province of Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. So she gets down there and spends three months with her cousin. Look at verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went to the hill country with haste to a city of Judah. And entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb. Who was that baby in, in, in Elizabeth's womb? Going to be John. He's John the Baptist. And he's still forming in the womb. And he leaps. He kicks. Then she, uh, and check this out. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, hey, that doesn't happen all the time. This is still Old Testament, by the way. Did y'all realize that? The history of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really belongs at the end of the Old Testament. It's still under the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit doesn't come on people and stay like He does for us. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. And she says with a loud voice, Blessed are you among woman, women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as, I, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, listen, listen to what Elizabeth says now, filled with the Holy Spirit. So she's got this right. The baby just didn't kick. He says, the babe in my womb, John the Baptist, uh, leapt for joy. Blessed is he, is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her of the Lord. And then Mary sings her beautiful song of praise. Interesting enough, it says, God, my Savior. Mary was not sinless. She needed a Savior just like you and I do. She stays with her three months at 56 and then goes back to her house. So, Elizabeth, time goes on. It's time for the baby to be born. He is. Verse 58, all the neighbors come. And rejoice with her. And then it's the eighth day. What happens on the eighth day to Jewish boys? Circumcision. That's how God commanded it. The eighth day. He didn't give a reason why. He just said on day eight you circumcise that boy. What we know now is on the eighth day. Um, your body coagulates its blood faster on the eighth day than any other day in your life. Isn't that interesting? God is good. He doesn't always give you the reasons. He just said, do it. Here's what I said, go do it. And they did, eighth day, they bring them in. And it's on the eighth day that they name the children. 
And so um, they asked Elizabeth, so are we going to call this boy Zacharias because that's his dad's name? She goes, no, no, we're going to name him John. Now look at this in and, and, um, uh, uh, verse 45. Um, I'm sorry, not verse 45. We're back. Let me back up here. So they go to name him, and they're going to name, they, they all thinking he's going to be named Zacharias after his father. But that's, that's not how it works out, does it? Um, instead, uh, they come to Zacharias and say, well, your wife says John, but you know, th- th- we're not going to name him Zacharias. What are we going to name him? Now, What's his problem still? He can't speak. He still can't talk. Um, so they went to him, and they gave him something to write with, and he said his name is John. And as soon as he says that, what? He, he can talk. So on this post-birth, we see in Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 39, that they go ahead and, and, and the, John names, uh, Zacharias names him John. And in verse um, 41, that's not it. I don't know where I'm seeing. Oh, because I'm in two. That's why. i got to back up. I flipped an extra page. I knew this wasn't looking right. Let me back this up. Um, verse 59, in verse 59, um, verse 60, his mother answered and said, no, he's going to be called John. But they said to her, there's no one in your relatives who's called by that name. So they made signs to his father. What do you say we're going to name this kid? And he asked for a writing tablet. He said his name is John. They all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all those who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. Now, I will tell you, I am not beyond manipulation. I tried to use that passage of Scripture to prove to my wife that it was my right to name all of our children. I said, look, it's right here in the Bible, black and white. And uh, fortunately for some of our children, uh, my wife is a better theologian than I am, and she just said, that's the Old Testament. We're under grace, not law. And that's why Ellie is not opal. So, Ellie, you can thank your mother today that she's a better theologian than your father. Um, <laughs> that, 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 uh, a, a form of that actually did happen. Uh, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you. <laughs> so, in verse 66, this is what I want you to see. This is so cool. And, those who heard, uh, and all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And my time is fleeting away. I don't have time to read. Would you go home and read Zechariah's prophecy? It's beautiful. But um, verse 76, I must point you to. In this prophecy, he says, And you, child, he turns to his infant son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. Check this out. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. That is a direct quote of both of those Old Testament passages. John, uh, Zacharias knows who his son is. Then look at verse 80. And so the child grew and became strong in spirit. And notice where he hung out. And was in the deserts or wilderness till the day 
of his manifestation in Israel. Apparently, the Kreths are related to John the Baptist. Because <laughs> this guy grew up in the wilderness. Anna posted something on Facebook this week, and there's little Joey over there, and he's all dressed up in his cowboy attire, and he's got his, his, his little gun with him, and he said, I'm a cowboy, and I work really hard to protect this property. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Kreths are born not needing shelter. Every one of them could do very well in the wilderness. Uh, and John was an outdoorsman. He was a wild man. He, lived, he, he spent more time in the desert and the wilderness. And there's something about being out there, listen, strengthened his spirit in the Lord. This is John. So I commend you back to Mark 1. We see the place where John was. He came, John came baptizing in the wilderness, verse 3. And by the way, in verse 3, don't miss the connection. Don't miss the connection here. The wilderness is an empty place. And by the way, uh, he was preaching a gospel that said we need to be empty ourselves of sin. There's no life in the wilderness and there's no life living a life of sin. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you today, I speak to all under the hearing of my voice. You will be left empty if you continue to chase your sinful ideas. Sin is a wilderness, a place of no provision. And John comes from this place of no provision, this wilderness, and he comes preaching. And I want you to see what he is preaching. He is preaching repent. And be baptized. Look what this says there. He is preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That word repentance simply means a change of mind. He takes Israel together and he says, Y'all need to have a change of mind about your sin. You must repent. You must think differently about it. And then you must be baptized for the remission of sins. You mean that baptism takes your sins away? No, that word in the Greek is a word, ace, which literally means towards the repentance of sin. It's a causatory word. It says because of your repentance of sin, you move towards that through two things, a change of mind and a confession of of your sins. See, for the Romans, the Romans weren't, didn't care about what you said. They wanted to see it in action. That's why John doesn't record a lot of what Jesus says, but a whole lot about what he does. It's an action gospel. And these people were acting out their repentance by being baptized. It was a demonstration of the rejection of sin and the acceptance of the coming Messiah. But I want you to notice also that there was a public confession of sin. Look at verse 5. Then all the land of Judea, that's the province of Judea, the whole southern half, southern third of Palestine, and those from Jerusalem, which wasn't far away from where John was, went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River. Oh, but don't, don't miss this little phrase at the end of verse 6. What's it say, church? Confessing their sin. That's a public confession of their sin and a public identification with John's message of changing their mind about their sin. These people weren't playing church because John was preparing the way for Messiah. 
St. Augustine said this, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. Amen? Confession of sin puts the soul under the blessing of God. Can I ask you, church, this morning, when's the last time confession of your sin was made to someone other than God? You say, we're not Catholic. We don't have to go to the priest and confess our sin. No, it's not about being Catholic. It's about being biblical. James says, confess your faults one to another that you might be healed. Brothers and sisters, we need to be public confessors of our sin. Matter of fact, you want a homework assignment today? You go home and, and you find a brother or a sister in Christ that you can get their ear for a minute and say, I need to confess some of my sin to you. And I need to turn away from it. I need you to hold me accountable for this. That's what was happening here. As John was preaching this, this gospel of repentance and baptism moving towards the forgiveness of sin. When was the last time you confessed your sin to another human being? Last night, my little boy confessed to me some childish wrong. And kneeling at my knee, he prayed with tears, Dear God, make me a man like Daddy, wise and strong. I know you can. Then while I slept, then while he slept, I knelt beside his bed, confessed my sin, and prayed with low bowed head. Oh, God, make me a child like my child here, pure, guileless, trusting thee with a faith sincere. Oh, that we would confess our sin. You know why you don't? Fear. You know what you don't have when you do confess your sin? No more fear. You're being lied to by the enemy. What's the picture here, real quick, in verse 6? Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And he even tells us what he ate. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I looked that up. God's law is very strict about what you can eat and what you can't eat. Do you know locusts is on the can-eat list? <laughs> Go figure. So lunch will be served. I got some locusts and wild honey on the porch after church, and I expect all of you to try it on the way out. I'm just kidding. Right? So he's a wild man. So he has a little bit of something to see, but, but don't miss this. Um, if John, uh, what we see here, I wrote this down. Just jot this down in, in your outline. 2 Kings 1.8. This is exactly a picture of Elijah, and they would have known it. The prophets in the Old Testament often dressed in this specific way, with camel hair and a leather belt. And, and that's how they identified them. Remember the mantle with Elijah. That was his belt, his outfit. He said, and and Elijah, Elijah said to Elisha, if you're here when I leave, you can have this mantle. You can have my outfit. And Elisha puts it. It is the attire of the prophets. Why? Because he is the preparer of the way that has been prophesied in the Old Testament. Then we, so that's the, the picture. And then lastly, I want you to see the prediction. First of all, the one coming. John then tells them, and he preached saying, There is one after me, coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. He's greater than me, John said. By the way, they were cousins. 
I'm not worthy even to be his foot washing servant. That's literally what he's saying here. When he said, I'm not worthy to, to loose the strap of his sandal. That was the job of the lowest slave in the house. By the way, the Roman saints would have been very familiar with this slave system. They all had them or they were the slave. And, 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 and the lowest guy on the totem pole in, in, the, in the household slave system, they literally had a name for him which roughly translates foot washer. And he's the guy who would literally, you wouldn't take your own shoes off. He would take your sandals off for you, wash your feet, and then put your, put your sandals back on. The lowest job there. And, and John is saying here, let me tell you, the guy that's coming, the one I'm preparing the way for, is so much more powerful than I am that I'm even beneath the foot washer. And every Roman would have known exactly what he was talking about. John humbles himself out and says, look, it's not about me. It's about the one who's coming. The foot washer. The lowest slave in the house. And then the baptisms are compared. He says, indeed, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. By the way, with that mention of the Holy Spirit, capital H, capital S, we now have the Trinity in the first eight verses. We have the Son, the Father and the Son in verse 1. And in verse 8, we now have the Holy Spirit. Don't miss it next week. The Holy Spirit is going to be the link between each section here that's described. There's going to be the Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's going to be the one that drives Him into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. The Spirit is the link. The Spirit is always the link between the movement of Messiah, the actions of what the Messiah did. He was led by the Holy Spirit, just like you and I are to be. There's a quote, I think, that will come up here on the screen. Uh, I thought this was really good um, as, we, as we consider this in closing today. The figure of speech, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight pass for him refers to the custom of sending an officer before a monarch who was to make a royal journey. This person was to level and smooth out any ruts in the road so the monarch's journey would be smoother. And they would have fully understood that, these Roman citizens. They were basically the road crew to make a smooth path for the king. And John was that preparer. He was the road crew to make a smooth path for the king. So people get ready because Jesus is coming. And that's what John was telling them. They had no doubt who he was. They had no doubt who John was. He was the preparer of the road for the king. It was prophesied. It's revealed. Mark's goal in conclusion in the first eight chapters is to answer the question, who is Jesus? And he does that right from verse 1. And the question today is, is he your rescuer from God, Jesus? Is he your prophet, priest, and king, Messiah? Is he your God, the Son of God, the one you worship? Can you say with a centurion at the end of Mark, surely this man was the son of God. That's Mark's goal in his gospel. Now it's super easy for you and I to sit there and shake our heads and say, uh-huh, at those three questions. 
But I have another question for you today. What can you offer, not to me, but to the world around you in which you live? What can you offer as proof of knowing Jesus as prophet, priest, king, rescuer, God, and Lord? What can you give today as proof of that reality? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? John said that's what he's coming to do. Have you been immersed in Christ and filled up with his Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit filling you with power and new appetites? Do you hate your sin and love God's law? If John were here in his camel hair and leather belt and he were calling you to repent and confess your sins so you could be baptized as proof, I ask you, what would you be confessing today? If you can think of anything, then you need to do that. You need to confess it today before you leave this place. Have you responded to this euangelion, to this proclamation of good news and great joy about King Jesus are you living out that gospel, that good news today? I close with this. It's an old poem, so old they don't even know the author, but it goes like this. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are read by more than a few, but the one that is most read and commented on is the gospel according to you. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the things that you do, by the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. So, what is the gospel according to you? Do men read his truth and his love in your life? Or has yours been full too much of malice and strife? Does your life speak of evil? Or does it ring true? Say, what is the gospel according to you? People, get ready. Jesus is coming. Would you stand with me? We'll have our musicians come. We're going to sing a song, a hymn of response. And you know what that means? It's time for you to respond. I ask you that question if John came in with his camel hair and leather belt commanded you to repent and confess your sin, what would you confess? If you could think of anything, you need to do that right now. You said, I need to come up there and confess? No, I'm going to say that. I am going to encourage you to go home and confess to somebody. You need to tell another human being what, what that is that's on your heart. And, and maybe you're here and say, I just need to, at first I need to confess it to God. Come and do it. You don't even have to stay where you are. Come, hey, Nobody got baptized standing on the banks of the Jordan River. They had to get in it. So do we. We got to get in the water. We got to come forward sometimes and, 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 and not be afraid that people know we got something to confess. That's what this old fashioned altar is for. I'm going to pray. And as I, even as I'm praying, if God is, is there's even an inkling of a call, of a conviction in your heart, you come and, and, and wet this altar with your tears this morning. It's that serious. You come as I pray, and then Joseph will lead us. Father, we come to you today praising you for Jesus the Christ, who is your son. Thanking you for John Mark, someone who blew it 
and yet was not put on the bench. Instead, he was put into service, and he writes this action-packed good news account of our King. And, oh, Lord, we need to respond like those first-century Jews, and we need to repent, we need to confess, we need to get in the water, the waters of baptism, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the filling of his Holy Spirit. Help us not to take any of this lightly, but heaven and hell serious. In Jesus' name, help us to get ready because Jesus has come and he's coming back. Do your work in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Joseph.